0: That discusses storytelling from all angles to help you and us answer the call when the muse screams, Tell the damn story. We'll be exploring the challenges of being creative in fiction, illustration, comics, film, and nonfiction. Hey, Alex Simmons, how are you?
1: I have no idea, but I'm here. I'm here. I'm okay. I'm good. How are you there? How are you there, sir?
0: Well, I'm excited because we get today. We get to talk to Dave LaRosa, old friend of mine, and on a creative He actually likes you and everything. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, he's he puts up a good front. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, as you know, everybody, we have been doing episodes on what it's really like to go from inspiration off the big screen or from television to actually getting and finding your way in the creative filmmaking uh, arena and today uh, we have a a great uh, creative human being who um, is charitable because he's given me work over the years Um, the uh, indie filmmaker Dave LaRosa has literally built his career from little more than a love of film some like-minded friends, and a willingness to try. Mm. And uh, that has taken him from a short-lived series uh, that I think was on the web to small handmade independent films, each more developed, each more successful, until he and his team won awards uh, for a drug enforcement crime thriller called Clandestine. Which is I've now seen that. enjoying, I've seen that, yeah, uh, yeah and it, it's now enjoying a long run on Paramount Plus. What a uh, long, uh, a wild ride this has been, and we're going to ask Dave to um, not get in Alex Simmons's Wayback Machine, but to get into his own time machine and, and kind of go through some of the um, some of the challenges and some of the learning experiences and you know, how how you do it, how you go from inspiration and will to, you know, seeing uh, you, you know, some of your dreams come to fruition. But before hey, all Dave, that, let, let's hear Dave's voice. Dave, how are you? How are you,
2: Dave? I'm doing good, guys. Thanks for having me on. I've been, uh, been a fan of your podcast for a while. It's what kind of inspired me to start doing some of my own, um not to the the level um that you guys do as far as the, the sheer numbers you know and consistency i only tell the damn story my podcast every once in a while <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you're out but, there uh, trying and that, that counts that counts I a see, lot
0: i yeah. see your episodes on youtube a lot and, okay cool uh, it's fun to uh, sit back and watch you have conversations um and see where they go and all that sort of stuff so yeah those are yeah. those are worth looking at uh,
1: so uh, so quick look at Chris set up, you know, the the general feel, but I'm I always like to let people know that you're a human being first. So just before just before we leap into the the adventures of Dave LaRosa, Dave, where'd you start out? Where where are you from? You know, what planet? Really, talk to me here.
2: Uh, let's see, uh, Klingon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I start. I was born and raised in Lincoln Park, New Jersey, uh, by Wayne. Um, and it was you know as i when you you know if you watch stranger things, except for all the horror with vecna and <laughs> the mind flayer, yeah uh, it was pretty much that you know, hang out with your friends, run through the yards at night, think about the imaginary monsters that were whatever, and mm-hmm. um and, you know it was great um ideal i Id- idyllic in a lot of ways, um you know with you know challenges too, but um I did that, and um. I've always had amazingly supportive uh, parents and grandparents and family. So uh, as my little cre- creative mind would um, <laughs> quiz my grandmother on the names of these weird characters from this thing called Star Wars. Um, <laughs> my grand my grandmother would try very hard. My grandfather would butcher it and just on purpose, you know, Chewbacca <laughs> became Chuahaka, just so I'd stop asking him. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was always just a, a very nice... Um, supportive environment whatever I was interested in or I wanted to do my my parents um and grandparents were always like very um yeah do it you know even when I said I wanted to be Captain Kirk or Batman they're like well hey you know anything's possible you know we'll see yeah. what happens um but um yeah so I did that and then uh it was funny because doing creative things was always something that I um I enjoyed but I always kind of shied away from it because I wasn't I, I guess I didn't feel um, there was enough uh, respect in it, or something. I don't know. So I wanted to get involved in government because, as a kid, that was far more respectful than. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh God! So You're
2: as I got your of, age,
0: Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know.
2: Um, so as I, you know, I went to all uh, well, throughout school. I would do plays, and I would do this, and I would do that, and. um, you know, the teachers would, would put me as the lead, I think, simply because I could memorize the lines. Um, I looked, you know, I watched my sixth grade play and it was horrific, but, you know, definitely no Anthony Hopkins there, but, um, uh, so, but you,
1: (laughs) you know, you, yeah,
2: yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's very true. Um, so, you know, and then I decided when I was, was graduating from high school, like, Oh, I want to get involved in government. Um, so I majored in political science, um, went to Montclair state and just started getting into this, you know, wow, I could, I could do acting. Like, um, I had some positive, really positive experiences and, uh, had a relationship with the girl I was dating at the time Go South. And I decided I'm definitely going to go and do this acting stuff. Um, So that was like in nine summer of 90 august of 95 that was my my month um and then i just started taking classes and i did it my way which may or may not have been helpful but i didn't want to go to any you know um structured schooling i wanted to take a class with this teacher i wanted to take a class with that teacher uh i didn't i dropped out of school i took a couple of film classes And then around the 98 i dropped out of montclair it was either that or just you know my parents were not going to pay for classes anymore because i wasn't doing well and um uh you know i i started working jobs where i felt like i was going to get experience and meet people um i worked in a liquor store did a lot of retail jobs uh you know the, the full whatever Full gamut. But um, yeah, from that point on, I pretty much just, you know, kept on saying every year in August, am I further along this year than I was last year? And every year I was, I didn't necessarily, you know, get up to Harrison Ford levels of success, but um, I did notice that I kept on, I wasn't on the same level in the house, at least I had gone up a couple of steps or whatever. Mm. Um, So uh, I, but then I started to get really fed up with the casting director process. I met Chris in 1999 at, uh, Bergen County players, right. saw him in a play. Um, thought he was hysterical. He played like a mafia. Yeah,
0: there yeah, <laughs> so. you go. <laughs> That's what you've been doing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. we talk to you about some things. Don't worry about that. Um, so you, uh, you were funny as hell. I didn't even know, you know, I didn't know you. And then I did a play there. Um, and Chris, you worked on uh, crew, I think, right? I
0: was, uh, I was backstage. I was yeah. snow and snowball tosser. That was my job. That's uh, right. Among other things, but that was my two big responsibilities. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, you know, started, um, chatting a bit and, um, it was uh you know and then i and then i left the theater and uh chris and i didn't we didn't talk for a while i think i went back to that theater in like 2007 i left that theater in like one or two um and uh and then i when i met chris again the interesting thing was um i had gone through this journey of saying like hey i'm just tired of i don't want to rely on anybody to give me work create or even if it's not paying just creatively like I want to do stuff I'm, I'm bursting at the seams and I keep waiting for when I'm going to get some audition um mm-hmm. and I got some good auditions and I did really well in some and I bombed other ones and um uh, it was frustrating and uh you know I just I had taken some acting classes uh with some really great teachers um uh, all of which I I just reconnected with uh, uh one of them uh, last week I met I hadn't seen him since 2007 um and w- my wife and I met him in the city for uh, for lunch and it was really nice to see him um but I learned something you know from all those teachers and one of the things they would always say to me is how come you don't direct i think you'd be a great director of course being an actor i was like that's insulting you know yeah. I, I should what do you mean i shouldn't be seen I, you know isn't everyone supposed to validate me every time i walk on the screen I should
1: be behind the camera what are you thinking
2: yes, yes. Blasphemy, Have you blasphemy <laughs> that's christopher plummer worthy um so it was just like you know i got thankfully i grew up a lot um and i started thinking like you know how about we just try to start doing our own stuff and we did a um, my wife and I and someone else um, put together an off-Broadway um, off show, which was some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life, which is why we've never done it again. Um, raise all this money, bust your ass, think you're not going to be able to afford the space. It was just so much stress. Um, the acting teacher that we met with uh, last week actually directed uh, a bunch of those uh, one acts that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, but then from that, uh, connected with this other guy, and we did this web series called This End Up, uh, which is probably the most politically incorrect thing on the internet. Oh wait, wait, it, well
1: you got to you got to give us a peek into that. What was that about?
2: So This End Up was a mockumentary about a moving company. Um, it so the
0: office, but it's it's that kind of feel, right?
2: Yeah, and we had a uh, we made it for four hundred dollars. The uh, guy I co-created it with was a weddingographer at the time so we used the weddingographer camera the quality <laughs> but we what we built into the story was that these dingbats in this moving company wanted to cash in on the reality TV show craze so they if they don't have any money to start off with so they just got whoever they could get who was probably a weddingographer mm. uh, which a real weddingographer would shoot a much better quality <laughs> than than what these guys did um But you had the character that I played, Guy Mulligan, who is is a, um, you know, he's a, he doesn't have a brogue, but with the name of Mulligan, he's obviously Scottish or Irish and in in golf, a Mulligan is like a gimme, you know, Uh, so he's always looking for, hey, just give me a break, you know, so that was kind of his thing. He's always hitting on every girl that walks by and, uh, you know, he's a mess. Um, We have a, uh, his, his right arm his best man is a lesbian redhead who weighs about 40 pounds soaking wet um she is hysterical uh, this actress that played her was beyond funny um we have another character azim uh who was a uh was selling drugs and and guns but that only comes out the very last episode um, and Azim is always using, saying, well, I, I, you know, Guy will say to him, where were you? And he's like, well, I had to, I had to pray. And he goes at six o'clock, he's like, Hey man, when God calls, God calls, you know? So there's always like all this nonsense going on. And then we have this other character, Matumbo, who doesn't speak throughout the whole thing. He doesn't say a word. Um, and in case you watch it, I won't ruin it. But then you find out there was a deeper story going on, uh, all the time for that. But I it's basically-
1: how many episodes was this
2: um uh i think six i think si- i don't remember i haven't watched it in a long time i think it was six was episodes episode? well we broke when we put it up on youtube we broke it up into like 20 uh not 20 i think 10 minute installments um and um uh, you know, and it, it plays really well. I didn't think it was going to. I, I wanted it to be like one big long thing. And when you break it up and you watch it in these installments, it actually becomes very entertaining. It's it's almost like, like cutting up your pizza as opposed to eating a full slice. It tastes different. Like it's, it's a weird thing. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, a fork and little pieces of pizza. It tastes extraordinary. Yeah. Um, we could package that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Eagle <Yeah. laughs> bites. So, so, um,
0: so what did, what got you to go, all right, I will direct and we'll, we'll do this thing. This, this end up. Yeah. Um, what made you make that move from, you hey, know, I'm an actor to trying it.
2: Um, the fact that the guy was doing it with, it was an extremely talented guy. We had a big falling out and I haven't, I, Chris knows all the details. I haven't spoken to him, I think since 2008, um, but he was very talented. He was very good, um, great collaborator, and uh, he did not know how to talk to actors. So mm. we're do- we're doing these scenes, and he would start to talk to them, and he would get kind of anxious, and he would be looking over at me. You know, I would be getting these looks, and I'm like, oh, you, I'm, I'm not in the scene. I'm you know, I'm co-creating it with you. But um, and then one time he just came up and he's like, Hey, um, I really don't know how to talk to actors. He goes, I'm. I just feel like. Like when they start asking me why, it's because I said so. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't work.
1: <laughs> so
2: I said, as an actor. What's my
1: motivation? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, you know, and there's limits. You know, you can't go through a full rehearsal when you're shooting something either. That needs to happen ahead of time because now you're wasting time and money and everything. But um, but it was really just out of a necessity. And I thought it was like, so what we agreed to is he would do all the camera setups Excuse me. He would do the lighting. Um, I would take care of the actors and get the performances out of them. Um, and that's what we did. And it was improv We knew what the beginning of the episode was, the middle and the end. Um, we knew locations that people had to go to, but the dialogue once they were there was just improv from a, re- a really talented group of people um, mm. in that. Um, so it was more just out of a necessity and then saying like, wow, I actually really, enjoy that. Like I gave someone a direction and they gave a performance and the performance got laughs and it was funny and they felt good about it. And I felt good about it. And you know, when we edited it together, I could, I could see it all, you know, forming. Um, so I, um, I just, I really liked that. And, um, so then when we started Phoenix films, which at that point, Chris and I had connected, uh, that was the film company we, I founded, uh, myself, my wife, um, current business partner, Kate, and then another business partner we worked with, uh, Nick, um, that was, we didn't really have anyone that would direct or had directed. And at that point I had only directed one thing, but that was more than anybody else. So, um, uh, I'm sorry. We had founded that with another actress, uh, Melissa, and then Kate came on later, but, um, it was, uh, I, then we did Lock Load Love, which Chris and I co-wrote together. Um, still funny when I I watched that. It's, it's... Probably about I watched it during the pandemic. I put it up on on Facebook and, and figured people might get a laugh. Um, but uh, I just loved it, and um, you know, I really started to see a scene. You know, either I wrote a scene or Chris wrote a scene or we co-wrote a scene together, and then we would film it. And I was like, yeah, that's that's how I vision that scene happening. And that was extremely rewarding. Um,
0: if if I could point something out, yeah. um, this end up was episodic. Mm-hmm. Lockload Love was vignettes.
2: So yeah.
0: you, at this point, are still working on what we might call short film format. Yeah. Right? And then it grew to full length. So we'll, mm-hmm. it's worth noting um, that you're directing style and the story kind of grew uh, with each project true
2: yeah very true um that's very true and i it was helpful because when i look at a film when i direct a film um i started the technique that i started to use was that every scene is its own little movie um there's a there's a beginning there's a middle and an end to a scene and there's Mm -hmm. a purpose to the scene however when you start thinking of it in the future how does this function in the overall body so it's almost like an organ in the body you know your kidneys have a process your heart your lungs your brain um so how do all those things function so you have to kind of know how those they all have their purpose and they all work within a larger organism And I really started to think of uh, directing and, and scenes and film and everything along those lines. But that happened because we started, um, with baby steps, you know, it was, um, do, well, let's do this and let's learn. And with these scenes in Lock, Load, Love, they, some of them were really funny. They were easy. Other ones were more dramatic. A scene that Chris had was more dramatic. Um, uh, there was another scene that was kind of dramatic, but Chris's was probably the most uh, you know, dramatic in that scene. Um, well, it, was,
0: it was almost dark comedy in that after all yeah. these... Uh, Lockload Love is a series of vignettes about the worst dates possible. Yeah. These two characters who have not met are going through horrible, ridiculous, absurd dates and then eventually meet themselves when they both burned out, meet each other when they're both burned out. And then yeah. what happens there? Um, I was one of her last dates, uh, for the female lead, which happened to be Kate, and um, we inverted the comedy. Rather than the male date being absolutely ridiculous, I was sincere, but I wasn't the date. I was the date's father, and something horrible had happened to the date, so I'm crying and all this, and now she's thrown completely, and the comedy, although it was a very serious and and, and emotional scene. The comedy is very dark because she's got to react to, to whatever this is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to segue into another thing that you had to do and had to learn how to do as an independent um, uh, producer director, uh, and that is find place places to film the scenes because mm-hmm. one of the things that indie, especially small indie productions do not have is money to rent places out
2: so right. do you
0: want to talk about the adventures in finding locations
2: yeah well first off what i wanted to say was you know you said my team don't shortchange yourself for clandestine because you were uh integral part of that team yes well, as, <laughs> yeah as one of the producing uh so yeah we've we've for the upcoming film, thankfully, we have money to pay for locations, although not a lot, but we have something, again. Um, more, but,
0: or, you know, you're, you're, you're more advanced each, each project.
2: Well, know, that's so. always the thing exactly is understand the business more be more advanced. Um, so, but for clandestine, we were still just like, Hey, we got money. That's great. Um, but you know, some of these locations are going to be tough and chris was integral in getting uh the high school new milford high school where we shot one two three scenes in um and then uh his home (laughs) right
0: and all i had to do was beg and plead my wife
2: (laughs) yep yep
0: and god bless her
2: yeah absolutely yeah tina came in with uh cookies and all these great little eats for us uh for everyone which were gone in about a blink of an eye um and uh but you know for and the thing with um lock load love which where we really had to get because every date was in a different location um that was i think chris you got the majority of those my god i mean there were i think 12 dates and i think you got like eight of them um but sometimes
0: sometimes uh, i know the um Who's on first tribute? Um, yeah, a whole date based on that conversation. Who's on? Yeah, first. but um, that was kind of uh, that location was kind of borrowed. You know, it was in front of the Lou Costello uh, statue in um, Patterson. Patterson. But um, mm-hmm.
2: well, we uh, borrowed the park. So
0: much a permit on that one.
2: Well, we borrowed the park from the drug addicts who use right. that to shoot up heroin. <laughs> so, <laughs> we- sorry, Lou. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was wild. But, um, but yeah, I mean, getting locations is important. And you want to get a location that is already dressed, which means it already looks how you want it to look for the most part, uh, because then that saves you money on dressing a set. Um, you know, if you're looking for uh, uh, a police precinct, find a place that you can make that already basically looks like one, um, you know, if you have a certain vision in your head, adjust it <laughs> if you can um, and and go with that. And, um, you know, but I mean, Chris, for clandestine, sometimes the problem with the locations is that places uh, you do everything you're supposed to do to notify uh, people yes. that you're going to be filming. And the message doesn't make it down the chain. Should so I, you have a... Hmm?
0: tell that story?
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so, I'd love to hear it.
0: So, um, the first hur- hurdle was getting past the Sicilian wife. And and I thought <laughs> that was going to be the most difficult thing. That was the easiest because she, the glorious one, is so sweet. Um, and then I went and I talked to the chief of police in my town and I explained what we were doing. Um, and he said, well, you have to go and see this woman in uh, the town council's office. So I did that. And um, very quickly, she said, "Yeah, fine." And then someone in the council got wind of it, and they tried to invoke the Stallone rule. Um, apparently, when Stallone and a bunch of Demir and a bunch of those people were filling Copland in mid Jersey, they were really kind of abusive to the town. Oh yeah and they just blocked everything for a long time so i get this call and again i'm kind of acting as a, a you know half halfway you know assistant producer or whatever and they say well uh they want a half a million dollar deposit <laughs> and they, say, how many trucks are you gonna have and i said um one van and um what were you driving it uh shimmy cobalt shimmy (laughs) cobalt i said that's it they'll be in front of my house that's it you know and um it got back to the chief and the chief said let him do it and and this woman who was she ran interference against the stolen law and got it for free for us and all that so god bless them and but they never told the cops that where I had to go block from block and knock on every door or house to house, every door, and tell them what we were doing and when we were doing. And I did that, but someone got up the morning we were shooting and looked out the window, and what what Dave had shown up at my house with was was it twelve off duty cops who were, were acting as extras, and they would act as a um, uh, SWAT team, SWAT yeah. team, right? So they're mm-hmm. all on my lawn, lined up, full costumes, right? And someone was actually
1: uniformed.
0: Uniform, yeah, yeah, uniforms. Uniforms, not even uniform. Yeah. I'll tell you another uniform story in a minute. So so someone calls up who had I had knocked on the that person's door and talked to whoever answered the door, but apparently that person never told the rest of the family. So they <laughs> called 911 and they said there's a drug bust. At, you know, the FBI is at 508 and they send a squad car over. Oh, now, this is, a, you know, I live in a small town. So the cop, his kids went to school with my kids and they were on Little League and all that together. So he says, Chris, what's, you're getting bored? I said, no, it's a film. I talked to Chief, blah, blah, blah. And he's, he's looking and he says, what I want to know from you, very seriously do any of those guns fire and, you know, are they are they live weapons i said no they're made of plastic and he says, get out of here so we had to show them they had these you know tech nine type uh, guns and they were solid plastic but they were so realistic so we we wound up in the newspaper you know uh, you know about making this film and all that sort of stuff another quick story We're shooting at night, and God bless my wife's in bed and the kids are in bed, and we're shooting. It's about midnight, 1 o'clock, whatever. And uh, Nick had the van, and you had the cobalt, right? Mm -hmm. And a drunk driver comes around. We have a very quiet street. A drunk driver comes around. On her phone, high speed, not looking, she slams head on, to Nick's parked van, so hard, drives it about 10, 20 feet back, rides up the van, slams down, and then inertia slams her into the cobalt. And we all run out to see, and I'm, I'm like, don't, you can't take her out because if she's injured, you know, it's, you got it. We call 911 and all that stuff. And I explained to, because we just dealt with this last, you know, the last weekend. I was like, listen, we've, we're filming again. And da, 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 And the guy happened to hear the story. He says, Are any of you in uniform? I said, Yeah, he goes, get those uniforms off before we show up, <laughs> or you're gonna be arrested for impersonating an officer. So we all had to go and take the turn. And then because the, the the fire truck came, the ambulance and all this stuff, uh, the director of photography went around quietly and shot a bunch of stuff, and it wound up in the opening credits of Clandestine. Mm-hmm. So again, for you Indies out there, whatever's happening, you have to consider how can it become <laughs> material yeah. for the to, to help tell the story. Who you know?
2: Well, that's I, the, you know such. I was going to mention this at some point anyway, but you know, such a huge part of having success is is having a good crew, having a great crew, having people that um, you know are are uh, on your team, um, fill any deficits you may have. Um, have positive they want things to be successful um those are such important aspects because i was pissed um at that moment when the girl dukes of Hazarded it across the road and blew out my window so um and then she was in the car and she's like what happened ha? you know she's doing all this stuff and i was like just let her burn you know i was so pissed um <laughs> the and now <laughs> <nah.
0: laughs> well, sure.
1: something to film yeah
0: but she. <laughs> She went. So the story goes that she went to the police station the next day to pick yeah. up a car. She had no idea how much damage she had done.
2: Yeah. And, they and it was and pissed. It, it was
0: a pancake. It was there.
2: Yeah. It's amazing it was bad. that
0: she she came out relatively unscathed, you know, but.
2: Yeah. But so I'm up on Chris's steps looking at the carnage, not even thinking, well, this could make our movie look like we spent a couple of million dollars on it because this is something else. So next thing I know, our DP, Brad, comes over and he's like, hey, you know, hey, buddy. Hey, <laughs> buddy. Just, yeah, he's like, uh, I just, you know, I took some shots. I took some footage uh, very covertly. I don't think they saw me, but, you know, do you think we could use it? And I'm like, it's like, holy shit. I said, Brad, you're a genius. I'm like, this is <laughs> going to make the budget look like it's a million dollars.
0: Because now you had, you had fire engines, you had ambulances, you had cops, you had uh, lights going on yeah well, yeah yeah it worked really well
2: and then when we shot the the punch-ins the close-ups of the actual dialogue and character moments this event had already happened and um, we you know looked at the footage of what we had and um brad and myself set things up and uh you know we filmed it two hours away down south jersey in a <laughs> warehouse parking lot yep But the way Brad shot it with and blurred with the, you know, depth of uh, field and everything, it just looks like streetlights and houses, but it's, it's not. So, um, I, that's, that was stuff like that is also when I go, man, I love directing because it's, it's those moments where you can piece something together. You get to create a reality that, um, isn't even real, you know, uh, that's exciting.
1: I just want to jump in here um, because, again, we're, we're talking. We started out by asking uh, what was the aha moment for you? And and instead, it was, it was sort of like a slow stroll into this world that you're now a big part of. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned sort of keyed in my thoughts, and you just underscored it, just with la- your last remark, is something about the the energy the uh the improvisational aspects of it the you know thinking outside the box the going for what you can get the working with you know what's around um in independent filmmaking sometimes brings the real heart to the piece it Mm. it gives it its own identity and its own life and its own atmosphere and grit and and I, I, I think of this in particular because some of the early films that I liked, small independent films, um, one of them was uh, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and that, even though, you know, they, they did a big remake you know, right. not that long yeah. ago, the original worked better for me. It, it yeah. felt more authentic.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: there was more real tension in there, you know, whatever generated it. It just felt, Yeah. This is where I am. This is really cool. And um, there was a Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachi. Yep. Um, and um, even though this next film I'm going to mention was not a small independent film, it still had that that life, that authenticity that I equate with that kind of filmmaking. And this was a film called The Incident, which was made back in, I think, the 1960s. The Patty okay. um script about these two punks who take over. Uh, a train, the New York City subway car, uh, and mm-hmm. it's up, terrorized the people in it. And the way it's shot, you 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 get it. You're there and you're in it, and it's it's very yeah. powerful. So I think that some independent projects, I, I won't say all, but some really are more exciting, more vibrant, and and again more accessible for an yeah. audience than than yeah. some of the major blockbuster multi-million dollar films Mm -hmm. and i i think some of that has to do with what you were just pointing out is again yeah we're we're working what we've got and if something happens can we use that can Mm -hmm. we pull that in can we can we you know glean something from that that's going to just make it look that much better so i just wanted to bring that up you know this is just it's the, it's the cool part of it
2: Well, you know, it's, it's, you know, energy is everything, right? I mean, we're here because of energy, um, atoms, you know, neutrons, electrons, all that fun, protons, all that fun stuff. Everything is about energy. And what I feel when I look at studio, some studio films is a, a, um, lackadaisical energy. There's an energy, but it's like, like, look at, um, the first Iron Man, right you know we're all comic book geeks here um and it's like that oh can we make this work we got this former drug addict and this John Favreau and you know wait let's do a Hail Mary pass and see what the hell happens and there was a raw energy to that movie and when you look at a Marvel movie now I it's formulaic for me I know not everybody feels that way, but I, I'm not as engaged in it because I feel like it's become a lackadaisical energy.
0: Hmm. Um,
2: and I think that when you have too much money, you get kind of fat and lazy. Um, if you look at stuff like, look at the Godfather, I know Chris, you were watching the offer. I know, Alex, did you see that?
1: No, I haven't. I haven't yet. Well worth it.
2: Yeah, it's 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 not a hundred percent accurate, but it's pretty close. And they were on the verge every single day of a crisis. Mm. Studio wants to get rid of Pacino. The mafia is trying to shut down the production. Well, now the mafia likes the production. Well, oh, well now, now uh, the, what's uh, what was um, Paramount's um, uh, main uh, the the German guy uh, yeah. who owned whatever that was um that company was now not happy with something else and it was just this constant energy of trying to make this thing work and then it was we don't have money to go to sicily we can't go to sicily francis ford coppola losing his mind we have to go to sicily we'll shoot it on a backlight you can't shoot it on a backlight so it was this constant how are we going to make this thing work um and that shows up hmm. you know that, that there's an happy
0: accidents like uh yep, the mafia yep. guy who gets the actual horse head you know yeah. there was no the, the the horse head that they had made looked awful like paper yeah. and this yeah. guy's oh yeah I, I know what guy yeah no. yeah. <laughs> yeah and yeah, but... lying to the uh the money people yeah no that, that looks really good special effects
2: <laughs> yep yeah god that looks so real now i know the special effects did a great job you know so <laughs> it's um but there's an energy to to that. There's a desperation to like uh, there's that great line in, in Moby Dick. Um, uh, if his heart had been a cannon, he would have shot it upon it or I'm I'm butchering that a bit. It's such a beautiful poetic written uh, piece. but it's almost like that with creativity when you're you're doing something independent, whether it's a movie or a comic or a book or whatever it is. You know if if your chest could be a cannon you would shoot your passion into what you're trying to make and that's as joseph campbell talked about you know that's when you know you found your passion um when you're willing to do something for free and it's like you're you just think about it it's consuming um and i think that that's something that's lost in a lot of bigger studios and also um with some people too as they get more successful they kind of lose you know they lose that uh you know a great example is uh kevin costner when you first see him in um silverado and no way out there's a rawness to his performance then you see him in robin hood and it's like you couldn't learn an english accent you know you have like the studio couldn't make that happen I think it's one of the easiest accents to do. Um, well, actually,
1: in defense of Costner, that was in yeah. the contract that he was supposed to have time to pick it up on it, and then they, they cut it. In in oh they in, cut in, it like, two two weeks in they took away the the uh, the tutor that he had. Oh really? Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, because I because I was thinking West. Come on, that, that's not. And then I thought about it, and I did some reading, and I went, oh, I also know one of the actors who's in the film.
2: Okay, so yeah, so that's, that's in that's defense Alan of Simmons
1: Kevin. That's, no, that's in defense of Kev for that I like
2: one. Kevin Costner, but yeah. I remember thinking, and I honestly, to be honest, that's my favorite Robin Hood movie. Um, I don't like any of the other ones. And the Errol Flynn ones, I, can't, I just can't. I can't get into that anymore. I
1: very right, nice things different. about you, but OK. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but if you look at Kevin Costner in Yellowstone, it's like, oh, there's that grit. There's yeah. that hunger. There's that passion. There's something about this that feeds him, you know, he's a, he's from that. I think he's, he's from like the Midwest. Um, and you know, I, I, we started watching Yellowstone late, my wife and I, we just watched it in June and like binged everything. Um, but you see when certain people just get, they get inspired again. And I think that that's always, uh, and I've had, I'm obviously nowhere at the level of, of him, but, um, I've had that with stuff where I was like, Oh, you know, I think I'm done. I just can't, I can't do this anymore. And then something happens and you get inspired, mm, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, think you,
1: I think you find the heart of the thing. This, I'm always talking to my students about the heart of your story. What are you trying to say? What is it that you really key into? What makes mm-hmm. this important to you? Yeah. And if you can find that, then, you know, then that's what you go for. And I think you're right. I think Costner in this, really does there's something about it that feels very i'm here i am i have planted my feet and by the way just just because i want you to know that you're you know you're always welcome here um i found it and it says something to the effect of he piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from adam Mm -hmm. down and then as if his chest had been a mortar he burst his hot heart's shell upon it
2: yeah that's beautiful i love that's it that's the quote yeah thank you for finding that hey
1: that's what i'm here for man that's
0: what i'm here for <laughs> so to, to get bring it all back to the kind of a mini review to see where we've been and then i want to take it back to uh, or move forward to uh, some it's more of the nitty-gritty of you know you want to you want you want to throw your heart at it, right? You want to mm-hmm. burst your heart at it. You want to, especially in indie. You most people are doing it more for the uh, passion than for the billion dollars, you know. Yeah. Um, so so far, you've you've taught us to use what what you and the crew have. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, to, to. But use. but
2: pick your crew right pick your wisely, crew, right? Mm,
0: yeah, because the wrong crew member and the wrong cast member can really just think cut shit. your knees out. Yeah, yep. 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 so, so that's there. important, you know, take some time on that. Then, um, so like, for example, uh, my house was available or uh, your backyard or whatever, right? That's shoot what you have, right? Robert Rodriguez, yep. I had a guitar, yep. a turtle, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> right? and that's a, only a male mariachi. The uh, mariachi. Um, open, to, open to circumstances, that happen, and work with them to help tell your story. Mm-hmm. Shoot what you have access to, right? So sometimes yep. you know you gotta get over there and do a scene on the you know guerrilla filmmaking, but mm-hmm. you know, whatever you have access to. <laughs> um, and then um, I wanna ask this question next.
1: And then I have one.
0: Okay, this is, I'm gonna read all of it, so it's a multi-part. Okay. And then, then we'll go back to So we'll be, be prepared
1: it. to take notes there, Dave. All right. So
0: <laughs> what parts of the, a crew must you have, even at the earliest part? And then mm-hmm. the next level, what's good to also have? And then what can you tell people? Listen, you're not going to have this or access to this until your fourth, fifth, or sixth month? hmm so let's go from the very nuts about, at, at the very least this is what you need as your crew to, to make an indie f- film and then if you can get this and then you
2: know. so uh, you need a excellent director of photography and you need a excellent sound guy mm-hmm. or, or lady um, it blessed. can be either uh, but you need that, because I believed, and I was wrong, um, well, the performances, it's all about the acting. It's all about the performance. That's all that matters. No, <laughs> not to the industry. To the industry, it has to look and sound good because they can't. the audiences and the industry cannot get by a bad sound or bad lighting. They just can't so you could you could make the godfather and not film it and and um light it and uh do get capture the sound correctly no one will care so no you have care to about the film. no one will care about the film yeah yeah thank you um so you have to make sure you have a good director of photography and you have to make sure you have a good a, a good sound person um and you obviously need to have a good script and you need to have good actors there's a lot of things you know there's not um the biggest thing I've learned about film is there's no right way to do anything. You find what works and then you do it. Um what we're doing on our ne- our upcoming film is different than what we did on our other film yet it has similarities in our structure because we don't have 500,000 to make the movie. Um we don't have 260,000 to make the movie, you know. We have more than we had last time. Um, but we, we're not at that point. So you use things that you had, um, and you build on other new things that you want. You know, you're, you're kind of like a constantly developing city, you know, you knock down a building, you build something new, you leave this one. Cause that's really kind of cool. You like that, but at some point that might go too. Um, so it's really having, getting a good crew, um, getting people that are going to be supportive. You might get a cast member who's an asshole. It's completely possible. We are talking about creative people. Um, I did a show in the direct years ago when I was right out of uh, high school and the director thought I was an asshole. So in her world, I was an asshole for that moment. Um, so that stuff happens. Uh, but if you have a good crew, you guys create a a great... Um, foundation to keep that nonsense in check so it doesn't really impinge too much um so i find that to be important uh i mean when i before i started directing and really getting involved in the filmmaking i felt like the actor was the most important person you know well i'm, I'm playing the part i'm coming on and i'm doing my thing right and the crew was there four hours before you showed up and they'll be there four hours after you leave mm-hmm. they're making this is the engineers in the in the ship they're making the ship move so you got to give respect where respect is due and i learned that um i learned that i mean that wasn't something i believed it wasn't something that i thought anything about and i at doing it you learn it so um the reality
0: I mean, I, check for indie films is that you're not having an eight hour day yeah an 18 hour day
2: is more likely yeah which we had one of those on clandestine we <laughs> we got to the the Prospect Park Zoo which was our police precinct at uh 10 o'clock on a Saturday and left at 6 six thirty on a Sunday so that was our final day of shooting because they weren't going to let us come back anymore so we had to get everything in and I knew at um this is where a good casting crew is important because I knew it at, at midnight we were probably not gonna get done until six. And I just, I was like, hey, I think, you know, I think in one let let's see, you know. And then it was looking at 2, 2.30. <laughs> and then it was like, guys, we're so close. We're so close. We can make this happen. This is gonna be beautiful. I know we're we're uncomfortable right now, but it's gonna be worth it. By the way, did I tell you when we filmed the, the fight scene, I, I dislocated my neck, I think, and I had a horrible headache. So we can do this. We can make this happen. Um, Easy shot. And
0: Take one or two takes. You know.
2: Yeah, straightforward. <laughs> um, so, which is what I used to always say. It became a joke at the end. If I said it, it was almost like I was cursing us. Oh yeah. Um, that, would
0: be, that would be five to six, seven takes. Yeah.
2: yeah. My, my yeah. friend, my friend Tom
1: Doran and I were shooting. This is back when we were in high school. We were just about to graduate, and we were shooting with a, this. A, 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 a a, a, what kind of film camera? But we were shooting in Central Park at the castle and we mm-hmm. were shooting a, 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 um, a sort of a, a, a Indiana Jones kind of film. So we had That's all great. of our high school buddies and all these different costumes, these makeshift costumes. And uh, to make this short, Tom and I were the leads naturally. Uh, and we had practiced this stunt where he was going to jump up onto the wall and then leap down onto a couple of guys and there would be this fight scene. And we'd practice and we'd even pick the spot where the, the the top of the wall to the ground was like maybe five, six feet, maybe. Yeah. He takes off into the air, you know, the camera's rolling, takes off into the air, and I'm just a few feet away, so I can't quite see when he lands and I hear, ah, God damn, blah, 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 blah. And I come running around there and he's, he's rolling around on the ground. So, uh, I, twisted ankle, I twisted my ankle, it's okay, it's okay. You know, no, no, just keep rolling, just keep rolling. And he directs for another hour or two, some other stuff. But you can tell he's limping, everything. He goes home that night, and I get a phone call. He's in the hospital. He had broken the three middle bones in his right foot.
2: Oh, my God. And
1: I said, how did you do that? It was just like a five-foot drop. Yeah. He says, I took off into the air. (laughs) And right in the middle of the air, I thought, let me strike a cool pose. (laughs) And he landed full weight on one foot. Oh my God. But you know, these things happen. And like you say, it's like you push through it. And because there's that passion, there's that hunger to get the thing done just a little bit more. Let me, yeah, I'm in pain, but just a little bit more, a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but you are hungry for it. Yeah. You're, You're really hungry. You can see it. You can smell it. You know, you're almost there. And, and sometimes the things you'll do just to get it, even even at, at that younger age, but certainly as you get older, if you're still into it, yeah, you'll 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 go without sleep for days just to get that thing completed.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's and it's it is. It's a um otherworldly drive. Um it's I you know it uh, I don't remember the name of the album, but I would think it was uh Marvin Gaye's last album where he had uh What's Going On? Mm-hmm. Uh and the his friend asked him you know this is unlike this whole album is unlike anything you've ever done before you know what's what's going on or you know no pun intended you know right right and and he was like it's not coming from me it's coming from god and he just he had he tapped into that inspiration you know the universal creativity or whatever um and that music still is just you know you you put that on and you're like there's something else to this
1: Click on Part 2 for the next half of this exciting and informative interview.